Hey guys, it's February 18th, 2018, and this is your episode 134 of At Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are Laurel Black. Hi. And Megan Arns. Hello. Ben Charles is chopping out online. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> chopping out online again, Ben? Chopping out on some slow piazzola. It's good. I saw that. It's very, looks good. I'm surprised you didn't make a comment because I was using Pius's mallets. Oh, you were? Ah, uh, okay, I'll edit something in. Yeah, and also Caleb Pickering's joining us. What's up, Caleb? Hey, not much. Cool, cool, cool. Well, you guys, our guest today is the Director of Operations for C. Allen Publications. He has a unique career spanning performance, recording, composition, teaching, and business at C. Allen. He's regularly commissioned by soloists and groups alike, and he's an avid runner in his spare time, and he was snagged by Laurel Black, because they've crossed paths a lot on the Health and Wellness Committee, and frequently do the PASIC super early morning fun run. So please hello and welcome to Nathan Daughtry. How's it going? Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So when did you start this PASIC fun run thing? Oh, uh... So, so this whole thing is Ben Wallen's fault. <laughs> uh, ben, Ben was heading it up for I think for a couple of years, and uh, I had just run like the Chicago Marathon, or I don't know, one of the, it was one of my marathons that I'd run, and he knew this because of you know Facebook or whatever. So he uh, he he contacted me and said, "Hey, I'm going to have my like whole studio with me." this year at PASIC and would you mind taking over the fun runs or the fun run? It was like one day at that point. And I decided to expand it to every single morning of PASIC. Uh, so yeah. That's your fault. You can't blame Ben for that. That, that part is my fault, but he's never since offered to take it back over. So maybe he just <laughs> felt like you know, he didn't want us to get in your way. Right. I was just doing such an amazing job. Yeah. So I don't know. That was, like six years ago, maybe. Yeah. So, Nathan, I have a question about all this because it's funny. Uh, whenever I see anything listed about you online, a bio, it, it always seems to make a reference to your running. And uh -huh. I was wondering, is this something that, like, were you on the track team in high school, or is this something that started as an adult, or what? Like, how'd you get into this? No, I was always quite out of shape uh, <laughs> through. through Middle school, high school, I was always, you know, the chubby one uh, carrying the big bass drum. Um, so, no, I didn't start running until, uh, gosh, I was living in Houston back in 2017. Uh, one of my friends that I met while I was down there uh, was, was a runner. And, um, you know, I just I decided to start getting in better shape. And uh, so he got me into running. So, I mean, it's, it's just been about uh, 10 years or so. Gotcha. Nathan, am I understanding right you? Went and saw a Snarky Puppy last night. Yes, that's accurate. Yeah. What's that like? Uh, it was awesome. It was a big, big party. I didn't know. I mean, I'd never seen him live. Uh, I mean, in, I mean, live in person. I've seen videos and such. So, uh, it was cool. I didn't know what to expect with the the uh, the audience. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of Punch Brothers too, and it's a really eclectic crowd. Whenever you go to one of their shows, it's uh, you know. Kids that are in high school, college, uh, middle-aged hippies. I mean, whoever, you know, fans of, of, uh, of bluegrass or whatever. But uh, so I didn't know. I thought maybe it was going to be a similar thing. But I don't know. It was a younger demographic there than I expected, uh, which is cool. 
it, it was really cool. I mean, it was just uh, really, really high energy and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, one of the actually one of the highlights of the night uh, didn't have too much to do with them. Um, so uh, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Laura Stevens, who's a, a flute player, and I've I've played several pieces with her. And uh, her sister-in-law is Becca Stevens. I don't know if you know Becca Stevens. She's a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. And uh, she's played with Snarky Puppy uh, on a few occasions. And uh, she was on their uh, Family Dinner Volume 2. First track on that album is her song. Um, so anyway, she was there last night with my friend uh, Laura and, and her husband. And so getting to meet her was pretty pretty cool. That's so awesome. I yeah, tried to be a big fanboy and... Myself, yeah. <laughs> the other you said you were you were curious what the audience demographic would be like it's also interesting what the band dem demographic will be like because yeah. snarky puppy is not like the same five people every time it's like i think they call it a collective of musicians yeah that, yeah you mean uh, like nine in and out so you never know who's going to be there other than mike league right yeah, yeah i mean it was, it was nine people uh on stage last night plus uh um, I guess he's been uh, with the Ground Up record label. They've been featuring a uh, one of the artists on the label as, as for the first set uh, of their show. And so this is uh, a woman. She had won the um, Montreux Jazz Festival vocal competition uh, recently. And she's like, uh, I don't know. Her, her uh, She's not from the United States. So she's from like several different countries and uh she was awesome really 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 amazing nathan i have a, a question about composition i i saw in our show notes we have a little something about being pigeonholed as a composer people will say mm -hmm. and 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 we definitely had questions come up like that on the podcast and we've had yeah. multiple composers and a question that often comes up is you know how do you avoid being kind of typecast or pigeonholed as a composer do you have an right. answer to that yeah and that's not even I don't even feel like I, someone has said to me, hey, you are this kind of composer. Right, you know, right, I, for sure. Really agree, agree, agree. internal agree. assumption. <laughs> oh, um, agree perfectly. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that about you at all. No, no, no. I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting you did. Um, but no, that, that's in, that, I did say that. Um, and it's, it's more of an internal thing and an internal just dialogue that I have um, – Whenever, you know, in any given year, I can kind of look back at the year and be like, oh, man, I really neglected this area. How is that going to reflect on me? You know, <laughs> you know, once these pieces are out and available to to everybody, um, it, it, you know, it's just a constant dialogue in my brain of uh, of that. So what I, I guess more specifically what I mean is, um, you know, I mean, I write I write pieces that. Uh, really all grade levels, all difficulty levels, um, you know, whether it's a, a grade one concert band piece or, you know, a, a middle school percussion ensemble piece, but then all the way up to, you know, grade five, six uh, symphonic band and, and, and really challenging percussion ensemble. So that's it. You know, it's just trying to uh, continue filling in the blanks across the spectrum uh, and I try to do so across the year. And it's tough when, when almost everything you're writing is on commission. It's tough to, to balance that. But uh, nonetheless, it's there. 
You know, you, you mentioned commission, and I often get the question, how do you, how do commissions work? What's the procedure? And I, I feel like my answer is always different, and it's always case by case. And, you know, like how much more would you charge Ben for a commission than Laurel? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, that was supposed to be a joke. Nobody laughed. Right. Well, Laurel has a new baby, so, you know. Less, right. That would be a little less, yeah. Kind of, yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess a lot of I feel like everyone everyone in the in the room right now on the Skype chat knows this answer, but I, I think a lot of our listeners might not. They kind of wonder like, what what is a commissioning process like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, so so many of the factors are. Uh, I mean, geez, it's it's uh, <laughs> when do you need it? You know, that's that's always a big one. If, if someone needs something like next month, the, the price might be a little bit higher. Um, yeah. I, I'll give an example. I'm about to start working on a piece for uh, combined band, orchestra, and choir uh, at the grade three level. So it's like it's for a high school, but they want to use everybody in the music program. They're opening this new performing arts center at the high school. And I mean, this is not something that's going to be really terribly successful outside of this performance right so that had to be a factor too is this going to get any more performances out of this one right probably not that was i had to give that justification to them for the price that i was charging um you know i bernstein mass like yeah i mean i I probably you know excerpt or i can probably uh take a band piece out of it i can probably make an orchestra piece and a choir piece with piano accompaniment those type things but as a whole, that piece is not going to have wings, probably. So that's that's a factor. Uh, of course, duration and difficulty level and number of players and size of the ensemble, all, all of those things are Yep, sure, sure, sure. Too. Yeah, there you have it, folks. Caleb, you had a good question, didn't you? <laughs> I did, and I sent it to you. I'm going to have to read it, so maybe come back to me. Oh, yeah, sure. Um I, I have a question, actually, I'd like to ask. Yeah. Uh, I've heard Blake Tyson talk quite a bit about composing, and Blake says that a lot of people are afraid to get into composing because the first thing they compose won't be very good. And he often says, well, like, how was your first marimba solo you ever played? Probably not very good, and so on. So, Nathan, how did you get into composing, and was your first piece very good? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it was awesome. Um <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's accurate, but um, no, so I got into it. I, I mean, I didn't, I started uh, when I was in my doctorate, um, I was the first year of my doctorate, and uh, one of my office mates uh, decided he was going to take some um, just secondary composition lessons, a 30-minute 30, 30 lesson once a week, and I thought that sounded like fun. Uh, I'd always kind of been interested, but in that I hadn't dabbled too much, so I went into my first comp lesson with a um, I don't know, about 12 bars of a a piano solo. And um, it was just kind of like, I don't know what else to do with this. It's 12 bars long. I don't know how to develop this. So that's how I used a lot of my lessons was uh, figuring out how to transition and develop ideas. And um, yeah, so that's that's how I got started. So that that piece turned into a three movement piece for uh, for solo piano, which later became a percussion ensemble piece. And, um, yeah. So my first piece actually turned out pretty well. I've certainly written pieces, uh, since then that are really not good. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, but the first one actually turned out kind of okay, luckily. Yeah. That's cool. I I fear that like. I don't compose like I compose, you know, for classes, but I don't compose regularly for sure. And sometimes I'm like, hmm, I wonder what my voice would sound like as a composer. And I fear that, like, if it was terrible, I would just be like, OK, I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder yeah. what would happen if you didn't like your piece. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, it, it, this is actually the very reason I've hardly written any uh, solo marimba music. Um, the, you know, I mean, you guys know there's just so much out there, yeah. um, and and there's so much not good out there too, um, and so I just didn't want to write another not good piece. Um, right. So I, I got a commission for a solo marimba piece from uh, Jason Keeley down in Texas. Uh, teaches at uh, A and M Kingsville with Randy Fleming. And uh, so it kind of forced me into writing a piece because I just put it aside. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And uh, it was nice to be forced to do it um, and figure out ooh, how to write a piece that didn't just sound like every other, uh, you know, permutation uh, <laughs> written piece. So sure. uh, anyway, so I was happy for the challenge. I haven't written one since then, but uh, anyway. I, I understand the the fear, though. Yeah, I think we've said it on the podcast a, a number of times. I I think by now, I know I've said it in classes, clinics many times, but it seems uh, a lot of these people. I wonder if they're more brave than than brilliant. You know what I mean? Like a lot yeah. of the composers we examine, you know, you you go like, wow, I had no idea. Like, say, take Steve Reich clapping music or something. It's like, well. Is that genius, or is he just is he just brave enough to do it? You know what I mean? Because if I wrote a different rhythm and did the same thing with it, you guys would all laugh me off the stage. You know what I mean? It's like it would be a total ripoff. So yeah, to do that first, you know, is it is it brilliant or is it brave or is it brilliant that he was brave? You know what I mean? It's like there's yeah. a lot a lot to unpack there. It's cool. Well, and I think we could we could get into a whole other discussion about this that's maybe not all that relevant for today, but I think a lot of the relevance of art is not only who said it, but where they came from when they said it. Mm -hmm. Steve Reich didn't just uh, like one day wake up and think of clapping music. It started with the tape loops and that sort of thing. And like, yeah, to us today, that's not all that revolutionary. And we could all sit down and write a rhythm that loops on itself like clapping music. But for Steve Reich to have done it in his day and arrived at that point as I think what made it significant. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got, Caleb? Yeah, so my question, uh, me and a few other people talked about it, is basically you went undergrad, master's, doctorate, the traditional performance or education path. Um, with C. Allen, you kind of had to work with, uh, sorry, lots of ums and ahs. Uh, you had to learn on the fly as far as, I guess, business side of it. Yeah. So, yeah, is there anything you would give to younger current students or anyone else about just general what can they do now to avoid any business side missteps? Because right now, even higher ed, there's very rare we have actual business, music business classes. Mm -hmm. Maybe one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we're in a different time than we were uh, back when I was going through school. I mean, I, I'm not trying to date myself, but I mean, it, it, that's that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm 42. So... Uh, you know, we didn't have uh, all the 
um, online resources that there are now. Uh, I mean, there are so many things that you can learn online about, I mean, like if we're talking specifically about copyright. I mean, you can, you can learn um, all the things there are. I mean, it's still kind of a mysterious thing in, in some ways, but uh, there, I mean, you can learn pretty much everything you need to know um, about those things. So anything that is of curiosity to you, I think just seek out as much information or spend some time talking to someone that has an immense amount of knowledge in that area. Great. Yeah. Good advice. Laura, what do you have for us today? Yeah. So my topic today very much uh, goes off on the whole health and wellness kick, but in a different way than I usually do. So today I was very much inspired by the connection that seems to exist between music and medicine. Um, you often find doctors who are also musicians or who have um, a really great interest in both of those things. And uh, circling around on Facebook a few weeks ago was a TED Talk video by Dr. Anthony Holland. I don't know if you guys saw this, but he is the director of music technology at Skidmore College. And his talk is all about this research and this study that he did based on his own interests. Um, about how you can use frequencies to destroy cancer cells, which I was just really quite blown away by. So yeah, that's little, a headline. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> um, so here's just a little bit of about that. So Holland is a composer musician professor, like I said, but he's always been interested in biology as well. And uh, he was reading a book by a Japanese scientist who theorized that human cells would operate in the same principles as liquid crystals. So we're thinking like crystal glasses that shatter, meaning that perhaps you could do that to cells in the body. And so Holland thought, wow, I wonder if you could, yeah, you could just use frequency to do that. So he was looking for a machine that would allow him to perform this research and eventually found one uh, invented by a physician from New Mexico. And this device is a plasma antenna that pulses on and off, which is really important. So in this type of kind of high frequency therapy, if you will, if you just have a pulse that continues, a cell's going to explode because it gets too hot because it's constant electricity. So you need it to pulse on and off so that the cell doesn't just die because you heated it up. <laughs> um, so he found the machine and then it was about 15 months worth of research, but they came across a particular combination of two frequencies that when you used them at the same time, you could completely shatter a cell. And they started with microorganisms. Those frequencies consisted of one high and one low, and they relate to each other. Uh, one is 11 times higher than the other. So in our language, that's it's the 11th harmonic. Once you play those together, pulse them into the cells, microorganisms start shattering. And in his TED talk, he has videos of cells on a slide and you just see them, the borders of them just start to kind of wobble and then they just disintegrate. And it's like the interior of these microorganisms just dissolves onto the face of the plate. So once they could do it with paramecium and other types of organisms, they started to look at cancer cells 
which is the really, really exciting part. And they started with one of the most um, serious forms of cancer with some of the most difficult prognoses, and that's pancreatic cancer. And they found that those cells were really vulnerable between the frequencies of 100,000 and 300,000 hertz. So that's quite specific. And just for uh, relativity here, the human hearing range is between about 20 and 20,000. So mm -hmm. 100,000 to 300,000, like we're never going to hear it, much higher than we can discern. And the highest piano key, just for reference, is a little over 4,000 hertz. I can hear that key. Yeah. That's not not good. great. You should I can be able it. to. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a wood block, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, so, pancreatic cancer cells between 100 and 300,000 hertz. And how they know that they actually focused on that. So they had a, a slide, and this is, again, videoed in the TED Talk. So there's a slide, and you can see three pancreatic cancer cells. And then there's this other kind of microorganism just swimming by and you see the cancer cells explode and that one does not the other microorganism just like looks and then swims the other way <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it got scared at least yeah yeah it knew that was not a place to be but that's exciting because it means potentially that what if these different forms of cancer each have their own specific frequency or at least that's where my brain went yeah um yeah, so cool. And so then they decided to look at leukemia cells and found that they could shatter those before they could even divide. And so they really kept focusing on that. And in a series of tests, they destroyed between 25 to 42% of the cancer cells that they worked on. And the ones that weren't destroyed, they slowed the growth rate by 65%. Mm. So this is like to me, this is so significant, you guys. Um, so just just to be clear, this is the same way they like blast kidney stones, right? Except they're they're able to do it. They're able to target cancer cells and and use their specific frequency so that they don't harm the organs and cell tissue around it, right? Yeah, yeah. And this, you know, the the specificity of these frequencies is something that's still very much in a research stage, but the idea of high frequency, like ultrasound, focused ultrasound is something that is used now in different ways. So, um, and specifically in other countries, they already use high frequency sound to treat different forms of cancer, such as prostate cancer, but the FDA has not yet approved it for use in the United States. So you'll see it in other countries, but not particularly here. And to go off of what you said, um, Casey, of course, we ultrasound is used uh, at lower frequencies as a way to like look at babies in the womb, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get into those higher ranges, again, I read about this foundation, which is in Charlottesville, actually, not far from where we are, the focused ultrasound foundation and they of course just seek to raise awareness about this particular method of therapy for 
tumors for different diseases because it's so it's non-invasive it's non-invasive it's less expensive than traditional treatments it's such a big deal really and there's another ted talk about the focus ultrasound foundation and that's by dr neil neil cassell if you want to look it up but he ends with this woman coming onto the stage and she starts talking about her experience with focused ultrasound and come to find out two and a half months before the talk she couldn't walk easily couldn't control her movements due to parkinson's and there's a video of her and how she was then and then you're just watching her on the stage you would never guess she had parkinson's disease and it's just simply focused ultrasound therapy. And she's the first person in the United States to have it done. Wow. So, yeah. So that's a, a big deal to have someone brave enough to go through it. But also she's shown to this point, as far as I know, you know, no negative side effects of it, which is huge for the continuation of this. Um, the cool tidbit. <laughs> uh, so, Dr. Holland is not the first person to be interested in this, that you could use frequency to break up cancerous cells. Um, it's been around idea-wise since about the 1940s. So it's actually a really old idea, but we've just recently kind of had all the technology to really focus it. In the 1980s, there was a French composer and acupuncturist named Fabien Mamon who performed a year and a half long study alongside a biologist named Hélène Climal, who together they shattered uterine cancer cells using not just frequencies, but listen to this, using a xylophone playing an Ionian scale based on C. What? Yep. <laughs> yep. I don't know. I thought For you were going to say playing Ragtime Robin. <laughs> Different, different rag for different. Different uh, rag for different condition. cells. Yeah. Yeah. Different what rag for, for a headache? Cells. Yeah. Is there but, a rag that won't give me a headache? <laughs> you don't like rags, Casey? No, I do. <laughs> I do. I'm just trying to say stuff. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I've maybe been rambling for a little while, but anyway. No, I this is that, awesome. I that would it's be awesome. a fun, a fun way to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to throw this to you guys. Yeah, they used a xylophone and some cells shattered in 14 minutes. That's crazy. That's wow. really crazy. Yeah, I would have never thought. I thought, okay, yeah, no, I have no idea. That's that's really, really cool. And um, yeah, perfectly amazing. Laurel, this doesn't coincide with everyone's conspiracy theories that doctors and pharmaceutical companies have had a cure for cancer for a long time now, but they've been hiding it from the public because they want to make money. Mm. I thought he would have been, you know, uh, wouldn't wouldn't have been allowed to take the TED stage. Oh, right, yeah. They would have said, nope. Oh, no, no. Yeah, okay, point being that those conspiracy theorists are morons, and yeah, <laughs> we have doctors in our families, and yeah, there's no freaking way. That that's, if there was not, a cure yeah. for cancer, people, they would, like, you would want to, yeah, you'd be famous and rich overnight so yeah yeah no, oh, yeah. yeah come on is it as good as essential oils though i hear that cures a lot of stuff <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if it was like that like oh you have this you just need to eat 38 peaches and you'll be yeah fine. or like sniff this oil <laughs> yeah 
Well, no, yeah. Laura, where something. did you find all this information? It's so fascinating. <laughs> I want to read more. Like, where, what is this? Uh, well, the I TED Talk the has end. a lot. Uh huh. Yeah, TED Talk, and then looking at articles, you can find a lot of information about this that is really, uh, how do I put it? Like, homeopathic and not of any particular peer reviewed study. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's tons like that. And that's that's the bulk of what I found about the French composer is it was a little it's it's quite a bit less uh academic in nature. What you yeah. Find. yeah. Yeah. Right. They often talk about new new treatments or breakthrough research on uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and they they're usually using a bit of conservative language saying like look this isn't like done yet we don't know how far along they are but what often happens is some some news outlet gets a little tidbit of a report saying we're working on this it may eventually lead to that which may eventually lead to this which may eventually lead to a cure for a disease or something and then of course they report we've got a cure for this disease. It'll be out soon. It's like, no, by the time, if, you, if the public's hearing about it, we could be a few decades away from it actually being um, implemented. But it sounds like this is not, that's not the case because we're, we're hearing this from the actual researcher and it's much further along. And I guess that would coincide with what you said about the xylophone and people starting this in the 40s. Like, yeah, a few decades later, we're starting to hear about it and it's starting to uh, maybe become a real thing yeah well and on that exact note um when i was researching this i found articles that said like music kills cancer cells i was like nope not reading that because right <laughs> like that's just so not at all it's you can just tell it's going to be a pretty bogus kind of article um, yeah just yeah. by the title i just yeah I, I i hope this starts i mean obviously <laughs> because it'd be wonderful to just send cancer straight back to hell. Um, but also, um, yeah, it'd be great to prove all these conspiracy nuts wrong because they drive me crazy. I just don't like I don't like reading about all that and that stuff drives me absolutely oh, insane. Yeah. But um, yeah, thanks a lot, Laurel. That's that's fantastic. Nathan, I think you have something coming up in Australia. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Can you tell yeah. us about what's going on? Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> There aren't a lot of opportunities I get to kind of bring together all the worlds of uh, the various areas that I compose in and uh, and perform in. So, and, and so I kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, uh, you know, I'm writing pieces for for band or for wind ensemble for you know percussion percussion ensemble um, chamber music. So uh, this is the Australian National Band and Orchestra Clinic. Uh, this year, it's in uh, Brisbane. It's not a huge festival down there, but um, our publishing, Sion uh, Publications, we distribute uh, the catalog of Broga Music, which is an Australian um, Australian publisher in Melbourne. And they distribute our catalog there in Australia as well. Uh, and the woman that heads up that company, Jemima Bunn, she, uh, she helps organize this festival. And so she invited me to... Uh, to come down for it, both as a um, uh, as a composer and a percussionist, and 
So, yeah, I'll be doing, I think, three clinics for uh, band directors on three different topics, um, uh, whether talking talking about composition, talking about percussion and composition in band pieces, but also talking about how to deal with percussionists in band rehearsals, because we know that we're kind of jerks in the back of the band room if we're not given you know, quality things to do back there. Um, so kind of uh, suggesting some tools for them to, uh, to use back there. And I'll be playing a piece with the uh, Queensland Wind Orchestra, which is a, an ensemble, I think, of a, about 45 to 50 uh, university students from uh, around Queensland. Um, so the plan is, in my mind, uh, I've been wanting to write a piece for advanced uh, marimba solo with like lower level, like grade three band. Um, we just don't have a lot of pieces that are like that, uh, that you can go out and play with a, a middle or high school band and know that it's going to work, you know? <laughs> Um, so anyway, I'm planning on writing a piece to, to premiere with that, uh, that group while I'm there. So that's in October and it, uh, happens to be over, uh, our, uh, my anniversary with, uh, my wife, Katie. And so they'll be coming with me. Uh, awesome. uh, Katie and my, uh, my daughter Penelope will be coming with me. So that'll be the first, uh, <sighs> long, long flight. Uh, Penelope's been on a lot of flights, uh, but not any that are longer than, uh, two and a half hours. So how old's Penelope? Uh, she'll be two in May. Okay. So she'll be, she'll be about two and a half, uh, by the time that rolls around. So Man, yeah, it'll be interesting. That's so much fun though. She'll have her own seat, you know, uh, that's we'll get to test that out. We're going to Chicago, uh, for a gig in, uh, in May over her birthday. So this would be the first time she has her own airplane seat. So anyway, it, and that's, that's one of the things that's just important to me to involve them in some of these travels too. And, uh, you know, if I get the opportunity to go, yeah, I'm going to lose money, <laughs> uh, on it. But, you know, I, if you look at it as a, uh, a, a great, uh, performance opportunity and clinic opportunity while having kind of a discounted vacation, I think that's, that's yeah. a win. Yeah. Totally. Have and you been to Australia before? No, I haven't. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and you could, I mean, Caleb's on the payroll, right? So you could get Caleb in there to yeah, chaperone. Yeah. To, to be our uh, au pair on the trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can translate for you from. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, you guys, I do have a what's the sound for you today. Awesome. Yeah, we do need we do need theme music for this. So, okay, this will be a this will be a little this might be a little sloppy editing in and out here, but I do have a hint for you, and it is that um, this is an instrument, and this is probably not going to be one you can just dedu deduce logically. It's going to be kind of either you know it or you don't. But I have a feeling Caleb might know it because this is something we talked about a little bit in percussion lit. So, hint, it's an instrument. It's one of it's used in one of Ben's favorite band's recordings, and it's uh, significant to one of my favorite composers who I've mentioned on the podcast before. So here you go. Here it is in another usage.
All right, any ideas thus far, Ben? So to me, it sounds like an instrument that was used on the Beatles song, Baby, You're a Rich Man, that I'm now looking up on Wikipedia to try and find out what it is. Oh, but nice. It's, yeah, it's dude, some sort of synthesizer that it can only play one note at a time. Is that right? Yeah, good job. You're exactly right. So the solo, that actually wasn't the exact Beatles recording you heard, but it is a guy demonstrating this instrument, and he's playing this similar licks from... Uh, f- from that song, so you're exactly right, and I think I have that song here as well. Let me see if I can find that real quick. So I just found it on Wikipedia. It's is it the clavio line? Yeah, you got it. Nice. I thought it was a robot. Oh, sh- I thought it was uh, a dirty, dirty. Uh. It does. Say, it sounds like that. Yeah, it sounds like the, a dirty. The second dirty. clip did. Yeah. So yeah, Ben, you're exactly right. It's that solo on that tune. And any idea what this has to do with one of my favorite composers? I think Caleb knows. Uh, it's the Skelsey one, right? Yeah, right. So this is Chelsea's instrument. So when we were in Percussion Lit, we were talking about Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And we, Adam, our Adam DePercios on a few episodes ago, he found this instrument that Chelsea used and if you're familiar with Chelsea's music, especially his big orchestra works, there are these really big and very specific quarter tone, microtonal sound masses that evolve really, really slow and they move in and out. And it's just one of my favorite things ever. And Caleb just wrote in the chat, isn't this instrument called the Andolia, which is something Adam found as well. And we're like, wait a minute, I see this thing called clavulin. So the answer to that is that it's called the clavulin. It's built by Selmer Company, but they market it in Italy as the Andiola. So that's why when you read about Chelsea, sometimes you see it oh. written that way. So he supposedly had two of these instruments. It's the small little electronic keyboard console. It's technically a, a synthesizer. It's a monophonic synthesizer. And the cool thing, of course, that has that hip, folksy, I don't know, kind of organ grinder sound, like you guys said, but then also it has a pitch-bending wheel. So in Chelsea's music, there's so much of that micro-polyphony, and it's so specific. And I always wondered for years, like, man, his ear must have been so amazing to be able to construct those chords and construct those waves. Like, how the heck did he do that without... Like a very specific piece of technology, but the answer is he he absolutely had one. So I'm just going to play for you guys a, a a brief chunk of Chelsea just so you get a, a sense of how this was used. So anyway, one of uh, one of my favorites and one of Ben's favorites. I thought that was so cool That's that awesome. there happened to be 
a, a connection between those two, yeah. right? That's super cool. Yeah, like yeah, and it's it has that like uh, Megan thought it was a rebab, which is like an, an Indonesian instrument, right? Well, that one's Arabic, but there is a similar one. Yeah, I think. But it yeah, might... it has this very sort of yeah. Middle Eastern sound, and the Beatles obviously got very into the Indian stuff. And in the song, they like they mix like tambura and like Indian instruments with the clavulin. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely doesn't sound like an electronic instrument. It sounds like some sort of Indian right. instrument in that song. So and it's designed to mimic sounds of the orchestra. Yeah, so, that's, like, that's the oboe setting. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I've heard it in these different settings, and yeah, they sound just totally different. So let me just read you guys real quick what I, uh, the the notes I made on it. This is an electronic keyboard instrument created by the Selmer Company called the Clavulin. Its development started in the 1920s, but it's in the 40s and 50s that it becomes popular. It's a three-octave monophonic synthesizer set in a keyboard console attached to a speaker cabinet. It had several buttons to switch on and off high and low-pass filtering, which is intended to imitate uh, instruments of the orchestra. So you can find a lot of good stuff on a website called soundonsound.com. There's an article by a fellow named Gordon Reed. And it is this uh, quote from that says the standard clavulin offered 18 on off switches called stops on its front panel. The 14 note modifiers were named one through nine plus Z plus O, A, B, V, and P. I'm not really sure what those stand for. And these switches were augmented by four vibrato switches one, two, three, and amplitude. So those are the names of the switches. And Selmer marketed it with this little chart uh, configuration. So if you wanted to make an alto saxophone sound, you would use stops two and three, vibrato two, have the amplitude off, and use a range of M. I have no idea what any of that means, but on the, on the setting, on the instrument, uh, that's what you would do. This instrument is probably most famously known for, as Ben nailed it, Baby, You're a Rich Man by the Beatles. They were recording at Olympic Studios in London, and it's one of the very few times they weren't recording at Abbey Road. And apparently Olympic Studios had one of these instruments, and they liked it. And supposedly, Ben, they made that opening solo by rolling uh, orange up and down the keyboard um, instead of doing the fast fast finger noodling they just like rolled the orange up and down supposedly oh my gosh yeah it's kind of cool right <laughs> it's, yeah, it's fun what you, yeah it's fun what you'll find on the internet so yeah, it also that, had to dial the slide between quick. there's there's a video oh, of lang lang playing uh black key black key etude of chopin with an orange on the keyboard <laughs> oh really mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay Great, great, great. I'm, I'm almost done, just a little more. It also had a dial to slide between pitches, allowing the user to easily find microtones. So Chelsea is a newly discovered composer here in the last, you know, I, literally probably 15 years or so. I mean, Chelsea's exploded now. But uh, newly discovered composer prompting several musicologists to say things like, we need to rewrite music history. So whenever they talk about microtonality in these big uh, microtone orchestra pieces. The composers in the book is always Penderecki's Threnody, 1960, or Ligeti Atmospheres, 1961. But like we said, Chelsea had two of these instruments in Italy, and they were marketed as the Andiola instead of the Clavelin. Chelsea purchased them in 1957 and 58. He has several works. Uh, sorry. 
He has several works predating the notated, quote, first microtonal pieces, which were like, say, Penderecki and Ligeti. For example, four pieces on a single note is one of his orchestra pieces that predates it, um, as, as well as several others. So anyway, that was your, <laughs> that's your what's the sound for the day. It's the clavioline and Chelsea and the Beatles. Super cool. What, do you think you could still find one of these things today? How are they still being produced? No, I, I, and I thought to myself, like looking at it, I thought, oh, you could probably find one of these used on eBay or on Amazon. I couldn't find one. And the, the few video and audio resources out there, uh, they have people restoring them or going through like tons of pains getting them back to life. There is one that I, I, I would point you to, uh, this group in, I think, yeah, Germany, Klangform Vein is an ensemble, I guess, and they have restored one. So that recording I was playing you, the pitch bending, that was their, their pianist working with it. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah, Klangform Vein is, wow. is a YouTube video called Giacinto Chelsea Revisited. So you can hear this instrument by itself with the slow pitch bends and these guys talk, talking about restoring it and uh, bringing back some of the Chelsea work. Mm -hmm. There's a pretty yeah. cool, um, I'll just put it in the chat, but have y'all seen, people are using the same sounds, but in electronic music, it's a different, it's a different thing. It's not the high art Chelsea, but uh, the Rolly Seaboard. Those are cool. I played on one. They're pretty sweet. They're you sweet. Can so much stuff. Yeah, they're yeah, really, watching... really fun. I, 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 I uh, fiddled around with one on, at Sweetwater, actually. Nice. I was watching just this morning the MIT documentary on Jacob Collier, and they were using one in their like arranging process. It's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Who's got a question for Nathan? We have one last question for him from Facebook. I'd be happy to share that Ben posted. Um, it's from Brian Nosny. Was it always your goal to have such a diverse career? Did you know when you were in college that you wanted to be doing all these things that add up to your career now, or was it something that developed over time and then you ran with it? Uh, yeah. Hi, Brian. Um, <laughs> no, uh, definitely not. Um, didn't plan to have quite so much diversity. <laughs> um, it's a lot to keep track of. Um, but I, I really wouldn't trade it. I like, uh, I like the variety and everything that I do. It's, um, the publishing company side of, of things. I mean, I started working for, uh, for C. Allen, gosh, back in, I think 98, uh, so I've been wow. with the company for uh, for 20 years. Wow! In, great. in one way or another, uh, and so I started out just doing some um, some formatting and engraving work before I really knew what the heck I was doing. Um, and then it was just like Kinko's kind of work, you know, stapling, binding, copying, all that fun stuff. And uh, yeah, that 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 role has just evolved over time. You spend 20 years with a company. Hopefully you're going <laughs> to, you're going to move up through it a, a little bit. So, uh, uh, I now wear a lot of hats with the company, but, um, yeah, just, just, uh, keeping track of everything else. Uh, the, the composition side of things that doesn't happen while I'm there, you know, when I'm there, I'm there for the company. It's not, uh, it's not just free time to, to compose. So uh, all the composing things that I do that are, um, especially on commission, those are happening on the periphery of, of, uh, 
of that job and on the periphery of, of family life too. So, um, yeah. So no, I, I hadn't planned on doing that. Things just kind of, uh, evolve over time. I was just like anybody, I think, uh, you, you have a plan that you set out and things go, uh, differently for better or worse. Um, than what you plan and, or you try something out and you don't like it and you find other things. So, uh, like I said, I just, I really enjoy having the, the variety and the diversity and everything. Hey, Nathan, can you, can you tell me what you think about PDF publishing? Mm. Cause you know, I'm just a small, i obviously, you know, I'm nothing like a comp, you know, see Allen yeah. obviously, but <laughs> like, you know, I do my own publishing and, um, yeah, Caleb and I talk about this sort of thing a lot along with yeah. other, other self publishers. And yes, it's about twice a week or so, you know, we get an email saying, Hey, my music hasn't come yet. Can't you just send me a PDF or do you offer to sell it by PDF? What, what is your opinion on that? And see Alan's feeling on that. Uh, well, we have everything in place to, to make the jump. Oh, okay. To, to start offering PDFs, but there's a reason why we haven't and it's just it's the security side of things and mm-hmm. uh I, I don't know that we're ever gonna really totally get to the point where we can control that um right you know, companies uh have have certainly tried um you know you can limit the number of downloads you know some of them if they have software built then they can limit the number of times they can print it they can make it so that you can't share it with others in some way but we know that there are always ways to sidestep this, right? Right. Um, so I think the danger uh, in in selling PDFs that are not um, not secured are just the ease of being able to email it to hundreds of people. You know. Uh, right. I yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's something we deal with on a daily basis. We get the same kinds of requests, you know, Hey, I have a performance coming up next week. Can I, right. you know, well, <laughs> you should have ordered the music two months ago. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I don't really have the answer yet. I think it's a, um, it's a philosophical question as much as it is a technological one. Sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I really want to offer, that kind of convenience to everybody. I, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just a trust thing. Yeah. As a follow up, I think it's actually even more on, especially university professors rather than publishers, to emphasize the importance of paying for works. Yeah. <laughs> um, like all my students use, I mean, I'm sure all of our students use the exact same method books. Everyone uses the Cerrone book. But I I require every student to buy their own copy, even if yeah. they could borrow it from another student that's not using it that semester or something like that. It's like you need your own copy of this. Um, and I know it gets expensive and all, but it's it's an it's an investment yeah. in yourself. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I just I think it's one thing if I'm missing a per, you know one part from a percussion ensemble piece to call a colleague and say, hey, I can't find the percussion three part. Can you send that to me? But um, cause I mean, any, it's so easy, honestly, to scan music now, like we have a copier that'll scan it and email it to you in, you know, just a few seconds. So I don't think that, that sending printed music is actually really, uh, creating that much of a boundary anymore because I put everything on my iPad as a PDF. So it's, it's super easy to scan it. 
I think it's just more of an honesty thing and an understanding that you need to support the composer um, in purchasing their music. And yeah. I, I don't know how long he's been doing this, but I recently purchased a piece from Pius, and he now sells PDFs of his music. Um, and he has that you can only download it twice thing that Nathan was talking about. But, of course, if you own the PDF, you can send it to as many people as you want, as many times as you want. Um, yeah. Although, like, some, some of them now say, you know, this was purchased by, you know... Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah, that's smart. Like this was licensed to Megan yeah, Arthur. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I Pius wants. I think P Pius wants people to send it around because he knows it's not going to sell. Well, you know, Kelly, <laughs> you know, Casey's making that joke, but actually, a a funny story about computers is that uh, it, back in the I guess it was the seventies, there was this homebrew computer club in California. And there were two guys named Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak that were bringing their computers to this club and showing off their computers. And uh, someone in the club got a copy of some software that was written by some guy named Bill Gates. And nice. they started installing this MS-DOS software on all their computers. And Gates eventually found out about it and got very upset because he thought it was his intellectual property and they were stealing it. Ironically, because they, they spread the software so much... It became just the standard, and that's how Windows got such a dominance on the market, was basically people originally stealing it and distributing it. So he, maybe Pius has a plan for his music, Casey. Yeah, he could be. He's he's smarter than he pretends to be. I'll give him that. He's smart, <laughs> well, smarter than he looks. You know, and about software, just real quick about software, this, the same thing happens with big, like, uh, I, I've heard it with engineering softwares, like those CAD programs that cost thousands of dollars. College students can't pay thousands of dollars for these pieces of software but the industry supposedly doesn't fight them because they want the exact same thing to happen what's more valuable is getting these people competent on their particular software then when they go get hired by a big major company they're going to buy many copies of that software or when they go teach a class they're going to fill the classroom with you know four yep. copies of finale instead of you know for the price of the one that they stole they're now making it the industry standard Pixar Pixar does that with their rendering software. It's called RenderMan, and you can anyone can go to, the, go to their website and download yeah. it free and play around with it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Nathan. What were you saying? Well, I was going to bring it back to the sheet music. Um, one of the differences, though, here, you know, we're talking about um, intellectual property, but intellectual property through through music. So you're you're not going to probably get terribly rich off of a ten dollar marimba solo, right? But if it's at a level that um, you know, thousands of university students are playing it, even if they didn't buy it, you're probably reaping benefits from your performing rights organization. Uh, so right. I think it's a, a matter of how, how you view, uh, as the composer, how you view making the money off of your pieces. Sure. You know, are you making it uh, from, it, it, I mean, it's that combination of, uh, from commissions, from the sales of pieces, from the performing rights and, you know, what is the balance there? Have, have you done a Have you done a careful comparison or a depth depthful comparison of like BMI and ASCAP and uh, CSAC or anything? I have not. Uh, so, from the publishing company perspective, uh, without giving giving away too much proprietary information, <laughs> um, <laughs> just give away a little bit. It's cool. No, but but the majority of of our composers are with ASCAP uh, compared mm -hmm. to BMI. We don't have anybody that's with CSAC. Um, so, you know, obviously those, 
those royalty checks are going to be larger. Uh, I personally have had, um, I'm with ASCAP and I've had issues uh, past couple years just uh, when they changed their policies and, and their formula and um, a, a big difference from one year to the next when I know there are more performances than there were the year before. So yeah. I personally want to explore, you know, but there's no way to really do it without moving everything over to another place and then mm-hmm. have you made the right decision. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Well, and I don't know how, of course, I've had this discussion with many composers, and I happen to be with BMI, but I'm um, very bad at staying up to date with it, and I, I have a long list of pieces that I haven't even put on my BMI roster yet that I need to do. But yeah, it's be very hard to do a, yeah, some kind of, okay, which one is going to give you the <laughs> the more money? It's, I, yeah, I have no right. idea how you would figure that out. Well, I, I posted something on Facebook several months ago about uh, about this very thing and got a, a lot of responses from ASCAP users uh, that had experienced similar things. But then there was one who's a, a really, really popular choral composer right now, Dan Forrest. Um, and he said that his are just through the roof. Uh, and it's, I think it's the, his pieces are being performed in churches all over the place and it's being mm-hmm. counted differently, yeah. uh, than those of us whose pieces are being performed on recitals at university level, which are counted as educational performances as opposed yeah, to like a professional level, which are counted, you know, they're like maybe 10% of what you would get for a professional level concert. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, guys, I, it's about time. Any any last questions for for Nathan? Question. One more. Yeah, one more would be perfect. I think the Heartland stuff going on this summer. Can you talk about that a little bit? You're with Matt Coley and those guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they uh, for the Heartland Marimba Festival. It's being hosted up at uh, Virginia Tech this year, and uh, so obviously you know Andy Stevens is there. So uh, they'll have Escape Ten as uh, as guest artists for it and uh, they invited me to come up and be a guest artist for it because they're adding a uh, uh, percussion or marimba slash composition track to it um, so in addition to marimba lessons people can also take composition lessons through the week and um, yeah so that, that's kind of cool uh, to, to be a part of and so I'm planning on writing some uh, some new pieces for the quartet to play and hopefully something for uh, Escape 10 to play while we're up there and play some of my own stuff too so yeah should be a lot of fun so week long festival I think Sunday to Saturday Sunday to Sunday in uh, July Nathan do you find people come to you more often for lessons on performing or on composition I'm, I'm guessing it's more and more composition these days right <sighs> yeah yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Cool. Which is well, weird. I mean, you know, <laughs> you look back, you know, 15 years ago, and it's not where you expected things to be, but it's it's yeah. definitely a cool development. So. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Man, well, hey, thanks so much for joining us today, and congratulations on everything with your pieces and just how active you are and everything that's happening and everything that's happening with C. Allen. and. Thanks. Yeah, man, Megan, Laurel, Ben, Caleb, good to see you guys. Yep. Yeah, yep. thanks. Good to see you guys. Yeah, yeah, so thanks, Nathan Daughtry. We'll, we'll catch you guys at uh, 135.